The following conversation contains discussion of family violence, abuse, and trauma. If you need support, help is available. You can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or 1800 Respect on 1800 737 732. The first person that you encounter as a human being is generally your mother. And that's the first source of knowing that you have. And how valuable is that? You're listening to the Wheeler Centre podcast. This episode is part of the Wheeler Centre's Broadly Speaking series, proudly supported by Christina Campbell Pretty AM and family. In this episode, you'll hear Dr. Susan Carland in conversation with Alice Pung and Amani Haydar discussing what happens when trauma intersects with motherhood and exploring the complexities of culture, class and family. I would like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land that I am on, which is the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respect to their elders past and present, and also to the elders past and present of the lands any of our listeners may be on, and also any of our guests may be on. That's one of the functions of the pandemic is that we are all on different lands, and I do pay my respects to the elders of all the lands that all of us find ourselves on. So a big welcome to Armani Haider and Alice Pung. It is so nice to be joining you both today, albeit virtually. Thank you. I'm excited to be speaking with you both. Me too. Um, you both have absolutely beautiful and at times painful books about mothers and daughters, but they're also about fathers who, to put it mildly, at least in Armani's situation, fail us. And their books also about autonomy and domination and racism and no easy or perfect answers. Amani, your book, The Mother Wound, is a memoir of your life with a focus on your mother, who was murdered by your father, and the years that led up to it and its aftermath. And yours is a work of fact. And Alice, your book, 100 Days, is about a teenage girl who gets pregnant and her mother and the increasing restrictions that her mother puts on her becoming something of a metaphor, I guess, about the way their relationship is getting locked down under tighter and tighter restrictions. And yours is a work of fiction. As I said, they are both absolutely beautiful and remarkable books. And there's a lot of common themes. Both of your books reflect on the complicated and at times fraught bond of mother and daughter. This is a relationship that is often reflected in literature. What do you both think that it is that makes this bond unique? Alice, I'll start with you. Oh, thanks, Susan. I'd like to say it's a, it's a great honour to be here with Amani. Her, her book just blew me away. It was the best read I've had this year. Um, so my book is a work of fiction, um, but the... Bengali pot, I think his name was Tagore. I, I can't pronounce things properly. He'd said something like truth in her dress finds facts too tight. In fiction, she moves with ease. So a lot of the examples of um, controlling behavior and you know things that happen in my book um, are derived from experiences of people I know or my friends. And this mother-daughter relationship 
is is a it's such a fraught one because an adult has complete control over their child up till they reach legal age and in certain circumstances i i just wanted to explore what what is the difference between that and maybe the way you control someone who is almost of age 16 or 17 financially economically even to the point of what they eat and what they wear I don't know so that was the question I was grappling with (laughs) and it's not just mothers and daughters maybe fathers and sons or fathers and daughters in many cases. Mm. Amani what do you think it is that makes the bond unique between mother and daughter? Well, firstly, thank you, Alice, for saying those kind things. And I'm reading your book at the moment and also equally wowed by it. And it means a lot that other writers are reading my work. For me, that's a big thing as a debut writer. Um, For me, the bond is something that I look at in terms of what it might symbolise for all of humanity, what it might symbolise in terms of the knowledge that we pass on intergenerationally and um, that I, I, I feel is something that's often fractured and fragmented as a result of living in a violent society, as a result of patriarchy, as a result of um, not quite valuing um, those connections, not valuing the, the, the sense of village that perhaps other generations had. So for me, the part of part of what the mother wound looks at is how how did I lose touch with this um, immensely important source of knowledge the first person that you encounter as a human being is generally your mother and that's the first source of knowing that you have and how valuable is that and how painful is it to lose that in circumstances outside of your control and how do you then recover from that and heal and then honour um, the women who had nurtured you and passed on that knowledge. Mm. Continuing this theme of motherhood, you both, both your books engage with this idea of what daughters owe their mothers. Amani, there's a strong sense in your book of what you felt you owed your mum in her life and also in her death. Tell us about that. Yeah, so for me it was to, to write a book was in part to relieve an immense burden that I felt um, both as my mum's eldest daughter, as a um, witness in the proceedings against my dad and as a mother myself who had entered motherhood within these really volatile circumstances and had begun to appreciate what the size of my loss was and what my role should be or could be in healing that trauma and I guess what I what I felt the most was a pressure to do right, to to pursue justice, to pass on my mum's experiences in a way that had not been captured by the media, by the courtroom, and also to identify the points in time where she may have given a clue um, or identified a red flag. And because of the way that we're conditioned, because of the way society is set up. Um, it wasn't quite taken seriously or picked up on in a way that allowed anybody to respond in a tangible way. So for me, a part of that storytelling is about piecing together her reality and the things that would have been really important, um, I think, for her to have other people know. 
Alice, the character in your book, Karuna, her mum makes it clear that Karuna owes her a lot. How did you tease this out in your writing? Oh, Susan. Um, Yes, her mum makes it quite clear that Karuna owes her a lot. Um, And, you know, a lot of children of immigrants from certain backgrounds, their parents will will hone it in, you owe me everything. (laughs) Um, And because Karuna's mother comes from a third world country, as my parents did and a lot of the parents of friends I grew up with, no social security, the government doesn't help you you are completely dependent on your parents. So you do owe them everything. You owe them life. And um, what what is so uh, tragic about it is that the mother, um, you know, society doesn't give her anything. So she has to work quite a few jobs and her daughter's ungrateful. She doesn't understand if she locks her daughter up to protect her from harm because her daughter's got herself knocked up. This girl is not appreciative of anything. So there's a generational, cultural, and importantly, economic divide between the two as well, as well as educational. She she can't read or write. She doesn't speak much English. She came here as um, what you would classify as a a male order bride, you know. (laughs) So completely disempowered. Um, and, And the people I found in my life who felt the least empowered are the ones who have felt the need to have the most control. And I think Amani uh, wrote about that beautifully in her book as well. The reality, isn't it? <laughs> people with the less control, less self-control are the ones who need to control other people. Mm. You both touched on this idea of control. And I did want to ask you, you both about this. Alice, you say in your book on page 30, the page 238, Karuna says about her mother, yet I hope that she might realise this second time around that love is not all about control. And Amani, you say about your mum on page 47, and you mentioned this earlier as well, mum, despite being trained to identify controlling behaviour and gaslighting in her role as a counsellor, wanted to see opportunity instead of danger when her husband made her promises of change. Both of your books have this central theme of control running right through the middle of them. Um, And the way that control can sometimes be confused or abused as care. And Alice, I'll ask you, tell us about how love and control are so intertangled for Karuna's mother. Oh, look, I mean, even for my own mother, sometimes she'll say things like, you don't love your kids because you let them do X, Y, and Z. And it's because I I don't hold them really close and um, protect them to a degree that I find unreasonable. Now, to my mother who survived um, two wars, aftermath of the Vietnam War and the Cambodian genocide, or even before the wars, you know, if a kid in the village broke their arm, their arm would be useless for the rest of their life. If a kid got poked in the eye of the stick, they'd be blind. So for her, any form of harm was permanent. So for her, um, if you were to be a good girl, you would stay at home and look after your younger siblings and not go out at all, and that was a good and safe life. So lockdown is not unfamiliar to me. In fact, lockdown is a holiday. I have so much control as an adult. Um, And I know it comes from a place of love. But, Susan, what I loved about Amani's book is she... I I never realised this, but she teased out how patriarchy affected all of this because 
gosh, it made me think about my uncles and my father and and their levels of control. Yeah, and oh gosh, you know, <laughs> that blew me away. Mm. And this, well, this leads beautifully into to you, Amani, because in your book, control sort of replaces love um, as a feature in many ways. How, how did how does yeah tell us about that? So I think the point that Alice made in relation to uh, that village life, the surviving war, and everything have being seen as a matter of life and death, basically, and your livelihood hangs on your um, safety and not just your safety, your ability to fit in and function among the people that you're, you belong to. Um, and I talk in, in my writing about how my, how that actually contextualized my mum's decision to get married and move overseas in the first place, because we have a perception of, um, arranged marriages as being these like, uh, really transactional experiences. And in my mum's case, it, when I sort of delved into it, it wasn't. And I could see more and more how having lived in that environment, there were decisions around survival happening and there were decisions around opportunity. So you would actually see uh, love where perhaps it wasn't um, in the form of this man who's already lived overseas, in the form of someone who's travelled when you haven't and you've just graduated high school, and in the form of these are people from the same hometown as you who have mutual connections with your own family, who your own family who has had your best interests as heart is recommending to you. So it's something that comes packaged as love. And in some cases, women actually lucked out <laughs> in those circumstances. But unfortunately, in so many, they didn't and ended up experiencing immense disappointment, a lot of control. And on top of that, the isolation of being now away from their village, away from their families, away from any sense of support network, away from a second eye that could critique the abuser and actually point out that this is not love, this is control. And I think even worse still, again, going back to our presence in a patriarchy, we have these messages being reinforced by popular culture, by people around us, by um, things being taboo. So you can't discuss, discuss them and compare, you know, how's my friend's relationship in comparison to mine. Um, and I think it's promising that we have a growing awareness about what coercive control looks like and what healthy relationships look like. But that that's not going to change immediately what people's lives are like and the complexities of those. And it's not going to give people a checklist to be able to say, oh, you know what, this isn't love, this is um, control. So I think it's really important that um, through these stories and through Alice's book, these themes kind of come through and you can sort of unpick some of those nuances there and see what comes from this place of love and what is actually control and what is actually someone just projecting their immense insecurities and their own problems onto me. Mm. This is a, a nice segue into the topic of feminism. I want to ask you both whether you feel your book is a feminist book. Um, yes, I pitched my book as a feminist memoir. Um, I didn't sort of, uh, I don't shy away from that description. I did, however, want to um, provide a perspective that was unique and offer and, and come at it from a really authentic place. So I'm not regurgitating the feminism in my environment, but I'm offering a new perspective on what feminism can be, 
how it actually informed my own experiences and how it actually, you know, it wasn't until later down the track that it became apparent that feminism could even be useful to me, to someone like me, you know? So growing up, it was, you know, it was a finished project. It was something that was presented as um, historical women in Australia are equal. That was the messaging that I got as a young person. And somehow um, I could see that that didn't quite fit in with my experiences and didn't quite fit in with experiences of people around me. Um, But that was the dominant messaging. And I think that's because we've received feminism through a white framework from a framework that really focuses on capitalism and what you can buy and what kind of career you can have rather than feminism that looks at women who are on the margins, women who are the most vulnerable, women whose experiences seldom feature in mainstream conversations or storytelling. Alice, would you call your book a feminist book? Would Karuna describe herself as a feminist, do you think? Um, Susan, I don't think she would, but the author would. So (laughs) Karuna's 16 and she hasn't been exposed to feminist theory. This is a novel. But when I was reading Amani's book, um, I... I felt it was a very deeply feminist book and it was the sort of feminism that would have completely convinced me when I was um, 15 or 16, which I didn't have. As Amani mentioned, feminism was a very white women's thing and it was finished except for people like us, except for people like Muslim women or Asian women, in which case it was just beginning. And I just remember a girl at school had this cartoon on her um, student diary, which was um, this this woman who was in front of a mass of other women, and the other women were saying, "Have you come here to join us?" And on the second panel, it said, "No, I have come here to lead you." So that was the the model of white feminism. So to them, people like us and my one of my best friends um, who was Turkish, we we weren't we were the ones who were the the you know brown and yellow masses that they were leading out of the dark, and I. I loafed that cartoon and I loafed that diary <laughs> every time I saw it. I was so angry. <laughs> Amani, you actually spoke in your book about the struggle that you went through to find your place within feminism um, and how eventually you did feel that you did come to a place. Tell us about what that struggle was like and how you did eventually feel that you, you did find uh, a place for yourself in feminism or in a type of feminism. Yeah, I think having a sense of equality and fairness is something that's so intrinsically human. And somehow we lose touch with that because of the world around us, um, teaching us all these different things about our value. And I mean, I can see, I often give this example of a toddler, like you give them an unequal, unequal share of something, they will know, you know, and they will have a tantrum about it. But we're somehow coerced into believing and we're fed messaging that ends up telling us that certain compromises should just come naturally. You know, it's the obvious thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It's the um, respectful thing to do. And it wasn't until I learned the very difficult lesson of I did everything right, even in times, right, according to the definition of people around me, even at times when it didn't necessarily make sense, even at times when I felt, you know what, I could do this better or I could do this my own way, but I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to be a good daughter. I'm not going to be 
disrespectful. I'm going to get the right type of job. I'm going to get the right marks at school and I'm going to just be nice. <laughs> and I did all that. I did all the things. I got married. I didn't bring shame on my family. And I, I described the optimism that I had and the naivety that I had um, going through those stages of my life. And still oppression and patriarchy and the influence of toxic masculinity found ins into my life in a way that I could no longer kid myself into thinking that you can just outwit <laughs> outwit the world around you. It's going to catch up. And it was like actually having this like veil lifted and you can no longer deny the reality of your own oppression, of your own experiences, of how complicated things have been for a very long time and of, of how toxic the environment you were in was, but you were kind of like so adjusted to it that you took it for granted. Um, so for me in the days and weeks after losing my mum, that was all kind of just shifting into place like a puzzle. And I was already by that point, I think a feminist, um, but it didn't click into place and make sense in terms of the big picture um, until then. And I just thought, well, you know what, like this is going to happen no matter what you do. This stuff is going to happen in our world no matter what we do. Mm, yeah, I guess when you're in a game where the rules aren't fair, even if you play by the rules, you still lose. Yeah, and you can't affect structural change either. This takes us nicely now into the topic of race and racism, which I think both of your books touch on and I'd really like to ask you both about as well because both of your stories depict difficult stories about families that are Lebanese, Amani or Filipino Alice. And the first thing I guess I want to ask you is um, how do we write painful truth that isn't co-opted by racists? And I guess what I mean by that is did you ever hesitate about sharing these painful stories about families and people who weren't white, knowing that sometimes white audiences don't always do well with nuanced stories about people who aren't white? Did you ever feel like unless I portray this perfect image, it's just going to reinforce these negative stereotypes. Oh, well, it was a lot easier for me, Susan, than I would imagine for Amani because she's writing about her life and she's so, um, look, I can't believe it's a debut book. I, I've written 10 books. I don't think I could write anything like the mother wound in this lifetime. <laughs> it, it just humbled me. <laughs> Thank you. you know? I could never, it, it is just brilliant. I'm blushing now, Alice. <laughs> I'm, I'm still a learner feminist after reading Amani's book. I thought, oh, gosh, there's so much, <laughs> so much I don't know. But um, your question was race and racism, and it's a lot easier as a, a fiction writer to depict things. And I didn't shy back from depicting things honestly because my um, Chinese-Filipino characters are just as racist, except white society can't understand them. <laughs> <laughs> Amani... How do we write painful truth that isn't going to be co-opted by racists? For me, this was like really at the forefront of everything. So in the immediate aftermath of losing mum, I was worried about the framing um, of all things that I needed to worry about. One of the things that kept popping up in my head was the framing of the story, how little control I had, how I had no say, how um, some of the headlines didn't seem reflective of our reality and I again didn't know exactly what would be but um I just and I saw some of the commentary that was happening online um some of the racist comments on the in the face in Facebook um 
where people were saying things like, oh, he murdered her because she didn't pass the salt and things like that. And I addressed this in the book because I felt that it was important. Um, and also I, when I started writing, one of the first articles I wrote was to tackle that issue and that went on to become a chapter of the book um, in a more expanded format. And it's because I felt like I had to get this thing out of the way before I could be understood correctly. And that's a huge burden. And it was, it was persistent throughout, you know, my dad's trial, throughout whenever I saw our story on the media, just me kind of observing and feeling, even when the reporting was not bad, um, feeling conscious of how now as a woman who wears a hijab, um, my story was framed a particular way, how the fact that my mum had stopped wearing a hijab had featured in the trial itself and had been mentioned in the media, even though that had happened two years before. So I could see all of these threats, you know, in the language and in my environment. And that added so much pressure because instead of being able to come out and speak from lived experience of violence against women, I also had to develop literacy around race. And that's a complex thing to do. Um, and as an emerging writer as well, there's also the burden and the responsibility and the sense of vulnerability that you're sharing your words with people um, and you need to be careful about how you end up um, feeding into those stereotypes and those narratives. But I decided from the beginning that I would just write about it, um, address the issue and say, okay, well, that's done now. Let's go to the next point and move forward and let me talk about what I want to talk about. And that's been important. But at the same time, I've realized through my advocacy that you can't be like a single issue activist. And I don't think you can be a single issue writer and to really be a feminist is to be intersectional and to talk about the, both of those things at the same time. So really at the end of the process, I feel empowered by the knowledge that I was initially forced to develop. Um, and now I have that in my toolkit, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, I really, reading the way you had to, there was so much you had to explain for the benefit of your audience, Amani, because first of all, you had to deal with the Islamophobia that was all over the story. Then you had to deal with the way your dad actually tried to utilize that for his own benefit in his court case. But then you also had to try to justify why a faith that so many people have a negative opinion of is actually something that you draw immense strength from. There were all these things, all these sort of platforms you had to lay out for the benefit of the audience. Like you said, before you could even really say what you wanted to say. Does that get tiring? It does. Um, I felt that in the writing process, however, I'd reached a place where I knew how I wanted to deal with it. So when I actually sat down to write the book, that didn't end up being the hardest part because I'd processed um, that, that, that issue. Um, I also didn't struggle to lay out the role that faith played for me because it was so factual. It was, you know, we're in these mosque settings, we're in this um, environment where religion features as part of our daily practice, as part of our thinking around death and life and everything in between. So it was more about showing that truthfully and showing how the language can be harnessed by different people for different agendas and showing how complicated it, people's real lives are. It's not this, you know, we're not, you know, made from cookie cutters and, um, I'm interested to see down the track what other Muslim women will write about their experiences of violence and their and the nuances that will come out of that because I know that my story doesn't reflect everybody's reality either. And, it, it, you know, I hope 
um, that it simply creates more space for more stories. Hmm. Alice, um, these are on one level the stories your book and Amani's book they are you know adamantly or uniquely Filipino Chinese or Lebanese. To what extent, though, do you think these are also universal stories? Um, so, Susan, I think they're universal stories just because everyone has a particular relationship with their parents that is you're always struggling with your parents for a sense of control and that's how you reach maturity, that's how you come of age. And as a 16-year-old, um, girls get subject to a lot of, uh, you know, unwanted behaviour Unfortunately, for an Asian Australian girl, or even for a girl like Karuna who is mixed race, um, there's just a, a whole layer of, <laughs> of racism mixed in with that sexism. And I think there was a scene where she's being pursued by a carload of hoons who yell out, "Me love you, long time." Um, and that that happened to me when I was younger as well. I didn't know what to do. I just went to a neighbor's house and pretended I lived there. Um, but there's this distinct form of um, of racism that happens to what they call Oriental girls. Um, I, I just, so, you know, Muslim girls have stereotypes attached to them and Oriental girls have the passive stereotype and also the male order bride stereotype. And, and it doesn't just happen when we're young. I, you know, it happened to me on a tram where some man asked how much, asked my husband how much he bought me for when I was in my late 20s. I guess, yeah, I, I don't know to what extent these experiences are universal. I guess controlling parents can happen in any culture, um, extremely controlling parents, not just ones who love you for your own good, but ones who strip away all your rights because they believe they know best. Karuna's mother does dangerous practices. You know, when you come up to the part of the book where her mother believes in certain pregnancy rituals, you're like, oh, that's that's uneducated and that's dangerous for herself and the babies. Yeah. Both your books have an exploration on the role of forgiveness and when it is or isn't given. Um, Amani, your book, takes us through the agony of what your dad did and his and his family's complete unwillingness to ask for forgiveness or even feel that they should ask for forgiveness. Uh, And yet along with that, you are being pressured to forgive him regardless. What was it like writing through that experience? So the concept of forgiveness became really interesting to me as my dad's trial was taking place and as my dad's family um, put on the pressure in terms of how I should behave and what I should do. And I see it as a form of spiritual abuse and um, basically an extension of his own abusive behavior and an extension of the original crime. And because I started thinking about it so much, I was uh, doing some research for my master's at uni and I decided to make that the research topic almost the same time as the trial was taking place. So I had a desire to get to the bottom of this thinking. And for me, it ended up being really closely linked to victim blaming. It ended up being very closely linked to the way that we expect women in particular as victims to be dignified and graceful. Um, It was linked to a lot of um, uh, thinking around the world that um, continues this tradition of a good victim shows mercy 
to the person who's wronged them. A good victim does not get angry and in a visible way. And that all really comes down to basically other people's comfort levels. And more and more, I started to reject this idea that you had to be good in order to deserve justice and that you had to be good in your pursuit of justice at the same time. And how do we balance this real need for accountability and a real need for justice in all levels of society, not just in relation to interpersonal violence, with this pressure to forgive? And who does it silence the most? And through that research, I found out about, you know, for example, a small Amish community in the US where um, the belief is the particular strand of Christianity where the belief is that not to forgive a sin is worse than sin itself. And women are heavily pressured and discouraged from reporting um, sexual violence or from testifying in court. Came across another article about a nun who'd been severely tortured and abused in her church in New York who then decided not to testify. And I do not judge her on that decision because I'm sure as a victim of violence there'd be lots of factors that would go into that. And this case happened in the 80s. And then the people who had committed the crime couldn't be prosecuted for this for the for all of the different things they'd done. So it, it, I had you know given it some thought, and I wanted to be sure that the message um, of righteous anger um, came through my writing, rather than this trope about oh you should be nice and forgiving. Mm. Alice, in your story, um, it starts to feel like perhaps Karuna and her mum might never forgive each other. Did you feel as you were writing it that both Karuna and her mum deserved forgiveness? Um, so as, as the omniscient writer, you know, uh, in, in, you know I'm, I'm 40, so I could see it uh, as a mother and as a daughter and I deliberately didn't grapple with the idea of forgiveness in this book because you don't, like, it doesn't exist when you are, uh, a child and completely at the whim and mercy of your parents, you, you feel a lot of guilt, you feel a lot of resentment, you feel a lot of anger, but what is there to forgive? Um, and that's something that I only thought about in my adult life when I came to look upon some of my uh, close relatives and some of my friends' childhoods and, and to a, a small degree my own um, you, you can love a person the most, but it doesn't mean you love them the best. So you can say, I love my child, they're the best thing, I love them the most, or I love my wife, but it doesn't mean you love them the best in the way that they should be loved. And uh, it was just, um, you know, after after a terrible um, period in my, in my life that some of my... Uh, younger relatives reached out to me because I'm the oldest I'm the oldest of all the cousins and one of them disclosed to me because all throughout his life he was he's like oh you know I love my mum and dad I honor them they're good parents and one day he just said I should have killed that man when I had the chance and he was such a gentle and sweet and kind um person who internalized all this uh terrible physical and emotional abuse uh, to the point where he didn't feel like he was worth anything or worth living. Um, so until he was allowed to feel resentment and all this anger, so I'm not sure about this idea of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. You touched on that something there, Alice, that I wanted to ask you both about, which was um, in both your books you're mostly writing from the perspective uh, of being a daughter 
Um, but both of the main characters in the book, Armani, you in real life, and Karuna in the book, they both become mothers. And you yourselves are both mothers. And I wondered, did yourselves becoming mums impact on the way that you wrote and understood the mothers in your books? Did becoming a mother change how you viewed mothers? Amani, you had this great quote on your book on page 27 where you said, they fell silent and it was the kind of silence that comes at the end of so many conversations between mothers and their grown daughters. The type of silence where you forgive each other and understand that you tried your best. The type of silence that says, I'm sorry, I know better now. Amani, did being a mum change the way you wrote your mother? Um, I think so. I think the first thing that happened with with my um, realisation during a period of immense grief um, was this feeling that I was living a parallel life to my mum's and that what I was now experiencing was like a rerun of the isolation that she must have felt when she moved overseas and had a baby alone. Um, the, the sense of grief that she would have had about losing her mum so violently in, in war in 2006 in the south of Lebanon and being so far away and unable to control what would happen after that. So I think the fact that I was pregnant and becoming a mother in that moment gave me a deeper appreciation of the real weight of what had been lost and it heightened that sense of responsibility I felt to heal that because it was it started to seem inescapable. And to be honest, it, when I was going through the worst period of PTSD, that was the sensation. It was a sensation of violence is an inescapable thing and there's nothing I can do right now. And I'm already pregnant. I've got to see this through, but I can't promise a different world for my child. And how do I, what can I actually do? What's within my power that I can do to try and heal this? At that point, I didn't have the tools. And through a lot of work and through writing and through art and through connecting with people, I think I've started to feel a little bit more um, confident about what influence I might be able to have for the next generation. And But that's still, you know, it doesn't come down to the individual that requires all of society to change. And I think... Um, losing my mom in circumstances where I was pregnant gave me a um, insight into the nature of the whole world, the whole mechanism that I might not have otherwise fully appreciated. Mm, an insight into the whole world. That's a really interesting way of putting it. Alice, did becoming a mum, did it, do you, thinking of the character of the mum in your book, did it, do you see her with a sort of a, a sympathy because you yourself were a mother and, and you could sort of understand, even though she got it wrong many times, the the intention behind what she was trying to do? Oh, of course, Susan. Yeah, the, the grandma character is one of the, the characters I feel most sympathy towards and I thought that people would identify with her more, but they seem to identify with the 16-year-old mainly because of my decision to write it from the teenager's perspective. But becoming a mum, I just realised um, there's this quote that someone said to me, which I never forgot, which was, be careful what you say to your children because that's the voice they'll hear in their heads. It's like, oh, that's so true. And my poor mother, even in my own life, my poor mum was always subject to criticism everywhere from, from everyone. And 
especially her in-laws and her sisters. There was nothing anyone said about her being a good parent, but everything um, she would do wrong only because she was an outworker in the back shed, uneducated. Um, you know, we didn't have socks on. We, we had head lice a lot of the time. So she was always criticised. And her parenting was reactive instead of proactive. And because being middle class now, I see some of the mums who are so gentle and kind and sit their kids down and explain things. If we ran across the road, my mother would grab us, smack us and say, don't do that again. And her face would be ashen. That was her way of um, protecting us. She didn't know how to explain things nicely. She had to get back in that garage and fulfill those orders because she was an outworker. Um, and now having three kids, I realise I'm conscious when I'm reactively parenting, like I yell at them and I think, oh, you know, I better counter this with, with some kind words or some love, otherwise they're going to hear yelling in their heads. So I'm lucky that I've had an education and had um, have a middle-class upbringing, uh, not a middle-class existence. Otherwise, I'd be yelling at them all the time. So I have a lot of empathy for my poor mum. And that voice in her head was passed on from her mum who had 10 kids. So I don't know, you know, we're just going to cut that cycle. I think you make such a good point there, Alice, about um, the voices we hear in our head from our parents, but also the circumstances that led to them creating that voice in the first place. And I guess considering it with a bit of sympathy, if we can, um, I have to say I found both of your books at times difficult to read. Um, maybe that doesn't surprise you. And I wanted to ask you as authors, is it hard to keep revisiting that pain in your interviews? You know, Alice, you mentioned there are instances of racism in this book that you draw on from your own life. Like these things actually happen that then you've knitted into the fiction. Obviously, Armani, you know, the worst thing really that could happen to anyone you've written about in your book and now doing these interviews you are both just having to rip the bandage off that wound again and again and again to keep talking about it how are you both coping with that maybe I'll start with you Alice oh okay um to be honest Amani might feel differently but I it depends on the context but doing an interview like this and for most of my interviews um, I, I felt really quite empowered, you know, to talk about, and I've never even put it in words, but what it is is a lot of my readers and a lot of interviewers have told me um, forms of child abuse, which I've never thought I'd get the opportunity to talk about with nuance and depth, yeah, or even to think about in my life until I wrote this work of fiction. And it's not just talking to people, it's um, having this conversation where I'm discovering uh, so much, especially after I read Amani's book, uh, you know, where she clearly sets out what abuse is. And I thought, oh, gosh, <laughs> I've got to think about these relationships that have formed um, a lot of our family members and things like that. So it's empowering. Mm -hmm. I learned so much, particularly now there's a lot of diversity in Australian writing and publishing, and a lot of my interviewers are like yourself, Susan, or Asian Australians, which wouldn't have happened when I was first published. Amani, what is it like for you having to visit this again and again and again, talking about this book? Um, I, I feel similar to what Alice touched on. I feel that I've been able to shift 
my experience from one where I was the subject of, you know, reporting, subject of proceedings that were out of my control, subject of other people's um, description or interpretation of my reality to a point where I can be the narrator and where I can feel empowered speaking about it. Alongside that process, I've also had the privilege of being able to access support and therapy in in a multitude of ways that has given me a whole range of coping tools for if I'm triggered by content, if I'm struggling to get through a particular piece of writing. And that was so crucial in the writing process. And I don't think I could have done the book justice if I had started earlier or if I had started without an awareness of how trauma actually manifests in the body and in the brain. So that's been incredibly powering within itself. And still the actual writing process was difficult. I had sections that I, uh, avoided, (laughs) avoided my desk for like three weeks trying to, you know, knowing that the task that lay ahead was going to be really difficult. Um, bring back nightmares, for example, uh, take me a little bit out of my, uh, space, um, and get me, (laughs) disassociating a little bit, Um, but being aware that that was going to happen and knowing how to manage those responses that are so normal and healthy um, really helped. And immediately after I finished and it was all done and the editing was the marathon of editing was done, I went away on a yoga retreat with a trauma-informed group and there were women there who all had various experiences of abuse and furthered my knowledge about the Um, neuroscience of trauma and how it affects our daily behavior. And I think that goes back to the point that Alice made about mums mothering through trauma and not always being given the tools or the education required to be able to realize, hold on, I'm in a particular state right now and I'm reactively parenting as a result of that. How do I, you know, get back into my body and think this through and be mindful of what I'm doing. And I think that's one of the most devastating consequences of trauma, um, intergenerational trauma. It, it actually inhibits our ability to parent mindfully. And we do then end up passing unhealthy coping mechanisms onto our children who then have to find out how to cure that themselves. So I'm lucky I have had access. I know those things are not accessible to everybody, um, but it has really helped me with all of this work and everything I do. Both your books end with you, Amani, or Karuna, in your book, Alice, standing um, in the difficult aftermath of their stories, um, but with a sense of independence from the difficult situations and the difficult people that have tried to hold them back or you back. Um, If you could both project 10 years into the future, where would you like to see the women of your book? So, Amani, obviously, that's your real life. Where would you like to see yourself in 10 years? And Alice, where would Karuna like to be in 10 years? Um, Amani, I'll start with you. Hmm, I haven't thought that far ahead. <laughs> but um, I, I love what I'm doing now. I love being able to practice, to have a creative practice that spans different forms. Um, so I'd like to continue making art and I'd like to continue writing and I would like my next work of writing to be fiction so that I can step outside of some of my own experiences for a moment, still be informed by them and probably still write about them in different ways. But to sort of be liberated a little bit from that burden, I think would free me a little bit creatively. Um, So maybe that's part of my 10-year plan. I'd like to see my daughter, who's one of the women um, who will emerge out of this story, um, feeling empowered and feeling interested in 
um, the work that I'm doing and hopefully one day picking up the mother wound and reading it at a time when she's ready to uh, learn those stories. And um, I would hope that it would come in um, handy in my children's lives to have to have the stories of these women that came before them and to know them through that work. So for me, it's about sort of raising children who will um, appreciate their heritage and who will be able to um, continue uh, the work that's being done now to make the world a better place for women. Alice, where is Karuna in 10 years when she's 26? Oh, 26. She'll have a 10-year-old child and I hope that she'll be economically independent, you know, um, having graduated from high school, uh, got herself, I, I haven't thought very clearly about where, where she'll be, but economically dependent. And I hope that her relationship with her mother will reach a point of mutual respect. That There will be a point where her mother sees her as an adult and not this eternal child. Ladies, there is so much more in both your books that we haven't touched on, uh, female friendships or relationships, the role and impact of grandmothers. So to the listeners out there, these books are absolutely remarkable. I can't recommend them both enough. Steal yourself when you read them. They hit you in the heart in the best way. Um, Amani, Alice, huge congratulations to you both your books are both absolute achievements well done thank you so much i'm going straight back to continuing to read alice's book after we hang up a bit so, so i'm excited and energized after this chat looking forward to immersing myself in it thank you so much amani and thank you susan it's one of the best chats i've ever had about this book <laughs> That was Dr. Susan Carland in conversation with Alice Pung and Amani Haider on the Wheeler Centre podcast as part of our Broadly Speaking series. Find more from the Wheeler Centre by visiting wheelercentre.com.